Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey church, thanks for being with us on yet another Sunday where we cannot gather physically, but of course we are, as Paul the Apostle said, there in spirit. In other words, we're with each other in heart and soul and spirit, loving each other from afar as we keep our distance during this uh, pandemic that we're going through as a planet uh, together. Hey, I wanted to mention to you uh, or remind you of the guidelines or the process of reopening that I mentioned uh, to you as a church last week, just reminding you that we're going to follow the governing authorities, uh, wait for the guidelines that they give to us. We're going to go as far as they allow us to go. We'll probably have to be pretty creative once they give us the guidelines and how we can have a large gathering together. We'll have to have social distancing and limit numbers and things like that, I'm sure. Uh, but we will also not do less than the governing authorities are going to ask us to do. So we're going to just do as much as they allow us and not be more conservative uh, than they uh, give us guidelines for. We're going to continue to produce this service for you, though. We pre-record all these different elements, the worship, the announcements, the teaching uh, elements, uh, partly so we can put all those great elements together and also partly so we don't uh, have any snafus on Sunday with the live stream trying to do the service live. We just want to ensure that we're able to get this uh, out to you. So just wanted to remind you of that as a plan. And then secondarily, before we get into the teaching today, I also just wanted to encourage you to begin, and I'm sure many of you have already started this, creating rituals uh, and habits around your personal worship experience. In other words, uh, when it comes to Sunday and the, the Lord's Day, the gathering together of God's people, uh, I would encourage you to take this as seriously as you possibly can. Uh, in my family, what we do is we set a, a time. Uh, for us, it's 1030 on Sunday that we know that as a family, we're going to take in the service. Everyone's required to eat breakfast. Christina and I uh, spend time in the word and prayer before the service starts. We get all together. We get our Bibles and our notebooks. We put our phones away so that they're not there distracting us as people message us and things like that, try to get rid of those temptations. And then we lock in during that time of announcements and worship and time in the word. And if, yes, it is weird for me to sit there with my family watching a teaching that I've given a few days earlier. But you know, it's important for us to take this as seriously as we possibly can. Same goes for your life group environments. You know, take those seriously. Get them on your calendar. Make sure you don't miss them. And if you miss them, communicate to your group that you're not going to be there for whatever reason. But try to prioritize them because I think it are these, these rhythms that will help us during this season, especially uh, if this ends up being a real long haul kind of approach to life uh, that we're forced to embrace. All right, that's my introduction today. Today we have a great passage, Mark chapter four, if you turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter four, we're going to look at verse one through 20, the parable 
of the sower. And, and I've titled this message, Accept the Message of Jesus and His Kingdom. Accept the message of Jesus and His Kingdom. Would you pray with me right where you're at, wherever you are, would you pray with me and ask God to speak to your heart from his word today? Lord, we come before you and those separated through time and space, we pray, Lord, that through this technological avenue or outlet, you by your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that you would take, Lord, the timeless word of truth and Lord, that you would apply it to our hearts. And Lord, as we look at this passage, we pray that you'd make us more and more into a people who hear the message of Jesus, his gospel, his word very well. Lord, that we might bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, that that might come out of our lives. Please, Lord, we pray, help us to hear your word well. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you bless this time together in the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last summer, many of you know that my family and I, we were blessed with the opportunity to spend a month of our summer in York, England, just a beautiful place. And the centerpiece of York is a minster or a cathedral right there in the center of town. It's hundreds of years old. It took hundreds of years for them to build. And it has three main towers that are around 200 feet tall each that you can see from almost anywhere uh, in the city. It's an impressive and beautiful structure. And as with many historic church buildings, a central and beautiful feature of this minster are the glass-stained windows or the stained glass windows. From the inside of the building, one can see various Bible scenes depicted in this impressive and ancient glasswork. It really is a sight to behold. But when you're walking on the outside of the building, those stained glass windows look dark and dingy. In fact, it wasn't until we paid the money to take the tour of the inside of the building that we began noticing how beautiful these stained glass windows actually were. From the outside, it's hard to make out the details. It's hard to see the artwork. From the outside, the windows are unclear, but from the inside, they take on a whole new light. This is an excellent picture of Jesus's parables. Many modern people think that Jesus used parables as a way to make everything clearer. You know, as we're gonna see today and in subsequent weeks, Jesus did not use parables to make things clearer. They were not a preaching trick for Jesus. You know, a way to capture everybody's waning attention. You know, the old preacher trick. Well, that reminds me of a story and everybody begins paying attention. Well, that's not what Jesus was doing with parables. It was not his way of taking the cookies and putting them on the bottom shelf, making the truths he was trying to communicate accessible to everyone. No, Jesus's parables were in part designed to divide his audience. For those who were on the inside, they proved to be full of treasures that they would cherish forever. Because of their story-like features, Jesus' parables are easy for us to remember. 
And since they're easy to recall, true disciples receive Jesus's parables as a guiding light through the storms of life. But for people on the outside of Jesus's kingdom, his parables were confusing, dark, and often misunderstood. Though they came from everyday life, those on the outside could not discern their meaning. Now today, we're going to look at the first parable that Mark records from Jesus's teaching ministry. It's a famous parable. It illustrates the importance of hearing Jesus the right way. In it, we're going to learn how we must accept the message of Jesus and his kingdom without alteration, without hesitation, and without addition. Instead, we must hear the word and accept it. And if we do, fruit will grow from our lives. So without further ado, let's actually read the parable in the first nine verses of our text today. It says in verse one, and he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, verse three, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the setting that Jesus delivered this parable is picturesque. Jesus, it seems, had found a natural and beautiful backdrop for a time of teaching, the beach. And it seems that he picked an amphitheater, a natural amphitheater, where the land sloped down to the coastline. And as his voice cascaded up the hill to all the people, they sat there in rapt attention, listening to his words, a large crowd of people. And lest they crush him and press in upon him, Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And with his pulpit prepared, Jesus delivered his message. What an amazing moment. I wish I could have been there. Now in this first parable, like all the parables, Jesus used imagery that they understood from their everyday lives. You know, they knew about farming. They lived off the land. So the image of a sower or a farmer going out to scatter seed was easy for them to envision. Okay, the part of the parable that might have shocked them, that might have been harder for them to, to understand, is the scattershot way in which the farmer spread his seed. You know, why did the sower cast seed on the road? Why did he cast seed on the stony ground? Why did he cast seed among weeds and thorns? This is likely the feature of the parable that would have bothered the original hearers. Of the four types of soil that received the seed, only one bore fruit. 
These are meant to be discouraging odds. But as much as a one in four chance of fruit is discouraging, the kind of fruit that the one good soil produces is abundantly encouraging. Jesus said in verse eight, other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. These are astounding numbers. Some say that in that era, they would have hoped for a 10-fold harvest to come from seed. So 30 or 60 or 100-fold is meant to be an overwhelming number. It's like, this is impossible fruit. This is good soil. This is an incredible kind of seed. And then Jesus, when he wrapped up this parable, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, at the beginning of the parable, Jesus said, listen and behold. In a sense, that's what this parable is all about. You hear the story that Jesus just said, but do you truly hear the message? How do you hear? You hear it with your ears, but do you hear it with your heart? That's what Jesus is driving at in this parable. And I'm sure that many of the people walked away without any idea of what Jesus meant by the parable. I mean, the story wasn't confusing, but the point of the story would have confused them. You know, I pictured them walking away and one uh, man saying to another, Bill, I have no idea why he told that story. What does that mean? All right. Before we look at the meaning of the parable, though, Jesus gives a reason for preaching in parabolic form in the first place in verse 10 through 12. These are some difficult verses that we're about to get into that have confused many people. So let's read them together and see if we can make some sense of them. It says in verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, it has been given the the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, quote, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, when Jesus and his disciples finally were alone and the crowds were gone, some of his followers asked him about his parables. I, I kind of imagine them like, as Jesus is teaching the parables in front of the crowds, I imagine them with a front row seat, maybe even in the boat with Jesus. I imagine them nodding their heads and saying amen and maybe giving a timely, hmm, that's good. But the moment comes where they're alone, where they say, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so they ask Jesus about these parables. Now, Jesus responded first by telling them in verse 11, to you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. In other words, this is Jesus's way of saying that they were the ones on the inside of the building looking at the details of the stained glass window. They were learning, in other words, as they walked and talked and lived with Jesus, all about the secret of the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom, far from a mere external kingdom, you know, driving out the Romans, ushering in world peace, the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. No, Jesus came to bring God's kingdom to be inside the lives of his people. 
by his spirit, Christ would come to dwell in us. And the kingdom would first be internal and spiritual before one day becoming external and physical, you know, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back. And that secret of the kingdom is knowable in Jesus. The entire New Testament really affirms this. A secret or a mystery in the New Testament language is something that was previously hidden but is now revealed and uncovered in Christ. For example, Paul said it like this. He said that he had a job, a responsibility to make the word of God fully known and that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul came and revealed that mystery because Christ had revealed that mystery. Okay, the disciples and followers of Jesus, that's what they were experiencing. They were learning of this secret as they walked and talked with Jesus. They were being brought into this marvelous truth. And one day after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit would rush upon them and they would discover an otherwise invisible kingdom that had come living within, inside of them. Okay, but since the crowds and religious leaders during Jesus' ministry were not clued into that secret, Jesus said everything that he taught was in parables. At this point in Mark's gospel, opposition to Jesus is growing. Remember the last few weeks of our study together? You know, we've seen his family, we've seen the religious leaders, and even the crowds misunderstand him. They were not people who were in pursuit of a spiritual, inward, soul-level kind of change. Everything that they wanted from Jesus was external. Too many thought that they knew what the Messiah Christ and his kingdom would look like. So Jesus sent them home with stories that they would never forget. They were on the outside and the parables were meant to help them know that they were on the outside. Now to demonstrate the outside nature of the crowds, Jesus then quoted to his disciples a brief section from the book of Isaiah. And this is the more difficult portion. He said that the reason he preached in parables was in verse 12, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, may hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, if you're shocked or confused by Jesus's quotation, you're in good company. Uh, Many scholars have wrangled over Jesus's meaning. Did Jesus mean to say that he was intentionally shielding the crowds from the truth? Did he mean that he used parables as a way to keep them from understanding and ultimately to keep them from forgiveness? Were the parables Jesus's way of keeping people from knowing him? That's really the way the quotation reads at face value. So to help us understand what we don't understand or don't know, we should remember some of the things that we do know, some of the things that we do understand. First, we know that the parables were teaching instruments of some kind. 
In other words, if Jesus really wanted to keep people in the dark, he would have just said nothing. He would have just walked away from them and never interacted with the crowds. But the parables seem meant to point people to a greater truth. They should have, in other words, gone home, ruminated over the parables, and one day when the gospel preachers came to their town after the Spirit was poured out, they should have believed in Jesus. Second, we know that Jesus came as an extension of the love of God for the whole world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came, in other words, to seek and save the lost. His whole mission embodied the desire of God that people know him. The problem with the crowds was their tendency to think that they knew him when they didn't know him. The parables would help them pause and consider whether they really knew Jesus. Third, we know that these masses would one day be given an opportunity to believe in Jesus. After Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, his followers would then go throughout the whole world preaching the everlasting gospel. And their preaching would demand a decision. And they would go to some of these same regions from which these multitudes had come from. So one day, in their not-too-distant future, these very crowds would hear the gospel clearly and be given a chance to repent of their sin. Fourth, we have to say it like this, we know that humanity is always held responsible for its actions. What, what I mean is, is that even if parables were used to darken the understanding of the masses, the masses were still responsible for what they believed about Jesus. All through scripture, we see the principle that though God acts sovereignly, he still holds humans responsible for their actions. For example, though God hardened the heart of Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus, he still held Pharaoh accountable for his refusal to submit to God's will. And though it had been prophesied that a friend of Jesus would turn against him, Judas was still held responsible for his betrayal of Christ. In the mind of God, there is no conflict between his divine sovereignty and human free will. Though it's hard for us to comprehend how these two truths are not in conflict, in the mind of God, they're not. And who can know the mind of the Lord? So these crowds were still responsible for their decisions about Christ. Fifth, and lastly, we know that these parables had the same effect upon the multitudes as the rest of the word of God or the rest of the Bible. As some people heard and learned, others heard and rejected. That's what happened when Isaiah preached. That's why Jesus quoted from Isaiah's prophecy. The word of Isaiah softened some people, you know, like Isaiah and those who followed him in his prophetic utterances. Uh, but also Isaiah's word hardened many others. Just as the same sun hardens the wax or hardens the clay also melts the wax, so the word of Jesus' kingdom hardens some and softens others. A clear articulation of the gospel does this today. And the parables did this 
way back then during this episode. Again, like I said earlier, it all comes back to hearing. Do you hear well? If you accept the message of Jesus and his kingdom, you'll get more understanding. If you reject the message of Jesus and his kingdom, darkness comes. Okay, with all this foundational groundwork uh, laid down, let's actually look at Jesus' interpretation of this first parable. They, remember, they asked him about the parables, and now he'll tell them about this first parable, starting with the sower and the seed. So let's look at the seed first in verse 13 and 14. It says, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Okay, Jesus' interpretation of this parable, he said in verse 13, would help them understand all the parables. What did he mean by that? Well, we'll discover this when we look at the other parables in the future. But Jesus knew that this first parable would help unlock future parables, especially when it came to the definition of the seed, which Jesus said was the word. He said the sower, verse 14, sows the word. In other words, the word of God, the message of the gospel, the truth about Jesus and his kingdom is likened to a seed. It goes into various types of people and it produces different results, but it's the same seed. This is a perfect image for the word of the gospel. First of all, this seed goes everywhere. All different soils received it. Everyone gets a chance to interact with the gospel. You know, the sower sowed it on all different types of soil. And this speaks to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus was the original sower and every subsequent gospel preacher is following in his steps. And all of us are to be indiscriminate in our sowing. Everyone should get a chance to hear the gospel. Uh, John Piper, I'm sure many of you have heard or read some of his works over the years, recently released a short little book called Coronavirus and Christ. I mean, he is quick. He is on it. And in his little book, he offered suggestions for some of the things that God is doing in the midst of this pandemic. And uh, I read it. I found it refreshing because it moved beyond some of the more obvious suggestions that have been floating around in recent days. Uh, he simply just thought about what, what and who God is, the kinds of things God likes to do as revealed in the Bible. And then he suggested that God is doing some of those things during this season. And one of the thought provoking suggestions that he made was that God is using this time somehow, some way, who knows how he's doing it, but that he's using this time to shake up the world for a renewed push for gospel preaching to all nations. In other words, somehow this is going to lead to God getting the gospel in, a, in missionary form to more people throughout the world. In other words, this madness might help get the message of the gospel to the corners of the earth. How that's going to occur, I have no idea, and neither did he. But the idea is that the seed must go everywhere. But another element of the seed, secondly, is that it brings fruit only after it's been planted. 
The word is similar in that way, in that it goes into you and it bears fruit in future seasons. You know, for me, I've had car insurance from the moment that I got a driver's license. And in my 25 plus years of driving, I have rarely used my car insurance. But, but, to, but to use it on the few times I did, I had to keep on regularly making payments. And as you keep on putting the word into your heart and mind, one day you are going to need the truths that you deposit into your heart. Jonah is a great example of this. You know, when he was cast off the boat into the sea, he actually began praying to God. And one of the prayers that he prayed came from Psalm 88, verse 6 and 7, about being cast into the depths of the sea, the heart of the sea, the waves and billows of God coming over him. I doubt that Jonah ever thought he would pray that prayer in a literal sense, but there he found the implanted word had found its moment in his life. But another thing, a third thing about the seed is that it needs the right environment. The seed cannot be improved, in other words, but the soil is the issue. This is what the rest of the parable is going to highlight. Some types of soil bear little or no fruit. One type of soil bears abundant fruit. And though there are those who think that this parable is only about the ultimate and eventual success of gospel preaching throughout the world, I think it seems obvious that we're meant to see this parable as an exhortation to hear the word well. The right environment for the seed and the right environment for the word will produce fruit. When you're on like a long hike or a long military march, the speed that you can travel on that hike or march is partly dictated by the surface on which you're moving. You know, if you're on pavement, you can move rather quickly. If you're on loose dirt or gravel, it's gonna be a little bit slower. And if you're crawling through marshland, you're gonna be moving at such a slow and incremental pace. Okay, the same can be said for the word of God. When it finds the right soil, it can produce incredible results. But in the wrong heart, it produces very little. Okay, this all helps us understand that Christianity is centered around the word, the Bible, the word of the gospel, the message of Jesus's kingdom. The ear is important. How we hear the Lord in his message. The message is there, but we must receive it correctly. Okay, with that, let's end our time in the word today by looking at the varieties of soil that Jesus mentioned. The first soil that we'll look at is found in verse 15. And I would say it like this, some cannot hear at all. He said in verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay, this first soil represents those who express no interest at all in the word of the kingdom. People like this, say things like this. They say, Jesus is not the answer. I am not in need. I am not searching. And I certainly don't need a kingdom or a king to be part of. Now, Jesus pulls back the curtain on this type of life. And he shows us that it's actually Satan 
who immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay, this is meant to serve as a behind-the-scenes look into reality. I don't think hardly anyone in this camp would say that they're following Satan. You know, I'd like to receive that, but Satan has stolen that from my heart. No, they'll have other excuses and reasons that they'll dismiss Jesus's life and death and resurrection. But behind all of those surface level reasons lies an unseen influence of darkness. Now the opposite perspective would be to say things like this. I have found the answer in Jesus. I have great need and am thirsty for something more than this life. My own way has not worked, so I long to be part of a good kingdom with a righteous king. But the second soil, I, I would categorize like this. Some can only hear the joyous parts of the message. Some hear only the joyous parts of the message. He says in verse 16, and, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Okay, this second soil represents those who are excited about Jesus and his word at first, only to abandon him once difficulties arise. They immediately, Jesus said, receive the word with joy, like a seed in shallow soil, and they appear to grow quickly, but they don't have any root system. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They, they say things like this. I like the positive elements of the kingdom. I like the love. I like the acceptance. I like the forgiveness of the gospel. But I don't like the judgment. I don't like the exclusivity of the gospel or the ethic of the kingdom. I'm down with Jesus as long as he brings me blessing. But once I'm rejected, for his namesake, or once I go through a trial, I'm out. But the opposite perspective would be to say things like this, to say there's nothing and no one more beautiful than Jesus and his word. If I have to endure tribulation, if I pass through trials, it's fine. I would go through anything to have Jesus. If I have to deny myself and my desires to submit to Jesus, I will because he's worth it. If I'm mocked for my faith, it's worth it because Jesus is better than social acceptance. Now, a third type of soil I would categorize like this. Those who hear too many other messages. Those who hear too many other messages. Let's read of them in verse 18 and 19. He said, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Okay, this third soil represents those who allow the beauty of Jesus and his word to become clouded by other competing messages and desires. The cares of the world 
cares which belong only to this planet and world system invade their hearts. The deceitfulness of riches. Did you notice how it said that? The, the, the riches lying to them by promising security and happiness embeds itself in their minds. And the desires for other things, competing desires which dilute their passion for Christ begin to infest their souls. This person cannot be satisfied with Jesus or his kingdom. They say things like, Jesus is great within reason. Uh, he's part of my life, but only part of my life. He's not my reason for being. There are other things that bring me happiness. He should not be the one who defines all of my priorities. Other voices should have a chance to speak. There are certain things that I need to make me happy, and Jesus can't provide all of those things. But the opposite perspective would be to say things like this, to say, I am content with Jesus alone. There is more to life than this world and its values. It's a lie to think that I would be satisfied with more possessions, more belongings, or fame. The things of this world try to stir discontent in me, but I have learned the secret of contentment. And I can endure, can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, those are the first three soils, but let's look at the fourth. And I would just say it like this. Some people hear the message well. Some hear well. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and, it, and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This fourth soil represents all those who allowed Jesus to disrupt their preconceived notions about the Messiah. People like the disciples became who accepted the message of Jesus and his kingdom. In the time of Jesus, the people that he was speaking to in the time of Jesus, they would have said, this group would have said things like this. I thought that the Christ would come to reestablish Israel as a superpower. I thought that the Davidic throne would be revived. But now I see that Jesus, who is a descendant of David, is establishing a kingdom in the hearts of his people, which will one day be manifested in his visible reign. Sin is the enemy of his kingdom. And we come into his kingdom by believing that his death, burial, and resurrection is the way for us to be saved from our sin. Without alteration or hesitation or addition, I accept Jesus. And Jesus said that people like this end up bearing radical fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. A simple reading of the book of Acts fleshes this out. In the span of one generation, the original church took the gospel far and wide, and the world has never been the same. Their fruit was massive because they took Jesus at his word. They didn't try to live without him. They didn't try to adjust Jesus to their box. They didn't try to add anything to Jesus. And because of that, they bore crazy fruit. Let us be a people who do the same. I'd like to conclude today by giving to you a handful of questions to consider in applying this to your life. Number one, 
how might I be tempted to hear incorrectly? You know, as you think about those different types of soil, where do you feel your flesh sometimes going towards? Number two, what do I sometimes add to Jesus and his kingdom? You know, you say there's Jesus and his kingdom and I'll have him, but I also need this in order to be satisfied. Number three, what outside voices compete with Jesus's word in your life? You know, there's, there's his word, there's what he says, but there's other uh, voices that are perhaps competing. What outside voices are competing? Number four, do I receive Jesus and his kingdom with conditions? And if so, what are those conditions? You know, I'll take Jesus as long as I can have these things. What might those conditions be? And number five, a very searching question or set of questions, is fruit coming from my life? If so, do I wrongfully compare myself to others? And if not, what might be in the way of that fruit? In other words, if you are bearing fruit, 30, 60, or 100 fold, if you're the 30 guy, are you comparing with the 100 guy? Don't do that. Just be who the Lord has made you to be. But if you're not bearing fruit, then what might be in the way of that fruit blossoming from your life? Let us hear Jesus well accepting Jesus for who he is, what his word says about him, and what his kingdom provides. Church, I miss you so much. I can't wait, as I've been saying from 2nd and 3rd John, to no longer uh, write to you or no longer communicate to you exclusively through video and streaming, but to see you and to meet with you face to face. I pray that your life is blessed during this season. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.